0: I was embarrassed about my family. I was embarrassed about my cultural background. I used to hate it if I smelled of Indian food. I worked in a shop, a retailer, when I was 16, and I remember working with other Asians and just kind of really turning my nose up if I could smell curry on them, because I had this real stigma about you know, the fact that anything that washed out white was not okay, and it was actually dirty.
1: Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, Chief Exec of the Depolarization Project. You've just heard from our guest today, Kajula Dedra, who will be talking to us about how her relationship to her ethnicity has changed and why she now thinks no platforming is counterproductive. But before we get to that, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email newsletter at depolarizationproject.com. We promote this show with Open Democracy to their 8 million regular monthly visitors. You can find the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net slash depolarization project. I'm joined for today's episode by my fabulous co-hosts, communicator and business thinker, Laura Osborne. Hi, Ali. And our behavioural insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi, Laura. Hi, Ali. So we read Kadjul's book, Do Something, activism for everyone before the interview. It encouraged people to think about the changes they could bring about through campaigning. Kadjal knows a thing or two about this as the UK Director of Change.org. What stood out to you from this interview, Laura?
2: I thought Kadjal's ability to talk really openly about the way her relationship to how she identified as an Asian woman had changed over time was really profound. Her position that people you agree with and like can also be a little bit racist. I think it's also something we can all identify slightly awkwardly with. And yeah, it certainly resonated for me. And what about you, Alex? What should listeners look out for?
3: Well, the former Conservative councillor of me was surprised, and I, I mean really pleasantly surprised at how casual talked about being determined to hear voices from a broad perspective and how that was reflected in the shape of the user base and there's a lot that people could learn there about cognitive diversity when we talk about diversity inclusion which is pretty topical uh, right now
1: and with all that in mind let's get on to hearing from Kajal So, Kajal, welcome to Change My Mind. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you here. Your book, Do Something, Activism for Everyone, is a real clarion call for people to get off the sidelines and get involved in calling for change. Do you think there's something ever that's just inherently polarising about campaigning?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think it can be. I mean, for me, campaigning has always been about community and solidarity And I think that if you tell stories, you can really bring people together. So it should really be the opposite, right? It should be about bringing the opposite side along the journey with you and coming to some kind of agreement or the middle point. But I see lots of activism that's definitely polarising. Definitely in election campaigning, um, that's really polarising, but I just don't think it has to be that way. And my kind of activism has always been... Not to bash the decision maker and call them an evil person and think of them as a villain. It's about thinking of that decision maker as a real human being and thinking what's in it for them and how can I convince them, just like you do in lots of other parts of your life. I was thinking about why campaigning can sometimes get polarizing. And I actually, so I was at a a Black Lives Matter protest a few weeks ago and I felt angry then. I felt frustrated And when you're campaigning for so long and there's so much invested and we bring our personal experiences to the issue and there's years of oppression, it's hard not to release that. But I think that that can kind of come out in different
2: times in the campaign. But I don't think the entire campaign has to be polarising. You said, you know, you're often trying to find that sort of middle ground. But have you seen campaigning bring people together?
0: Absolutely. One great example of a campaign bringing together Unlikely allies, you know, groups of people that you just never would see collaborating together there was the campaign in 84 for the miners when the miners were striking. It was kind of the Thatchers against the, the miners. They were striking against coal mine closures and she'd stopped funds going to the miners whilst they were striking. So there were lots of groups across the UK who were fundraising and, and sending money to these villages. And this group of LGBT people in London saw this and they saw the way that the media was vilifying and villainizing the minors in the same way that they had felt persecuted by the media themselves. And so they instantly just felt a kind of a kinship to this group. They set up a fundraiser. They ended up raising more than any other group had for the minors and, you know, Bus down to this little village in Wales with this um, sign across their van saying, Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors. And that actually has become a lifelong collaboration. And I think it's just really beautiful. I think campaigning can be beautiful and it can be really community based and it can have the most incredible moments of solidarity. And there are moments like this where you just don't expect someone to have your back and they do. And that just gives me goosebumps. They then continued for years to support one another. You have. More power. When you're side by side with a group that you're not necessarily always connected to. Mm. Yeah. And there's a super powerful
1: film about that, which some of our listeners will be familiar with, Pride. You know, someone from South Wales has had a touch of the Richard Curtis <laughs> treatment to it, but but <laughs> most of it is indeed true. And you know, like yeah. it can t- it's pretty, really, you know, like my my I don't talk too much about it, but my private life, but my stepdad was a vicar in one of the mining villages. And what's really interesting is the ongoing relationship. He he resigned from the church, actually, because he couldn't do gay marriage. And part of the things that had started to seed that was actually this relationship um, and how it had come in. So you're right, it is entirely lifelong. And I think also when you have surprising partnerships, Kajal, and this is what I was going to say to you, is do you think they're more likely to succeed those campaigns with unlikely allies working
0: together? I think they're more powerful. And so they have a better chance. You're also then already speaking to a group that isn't necessarily in inverted commas supposed to agree with you. And so already you're exposed to different media, you're exposed to different decision makers or influential politicians. I think that they can be more effective. When we were working on a sex education campaign years ago, one of the key things that we did was try to get uh, the teachers unions on board. When I'm actually when I'm giving campaign trainings, I'm, I often talk about I like, don't just think about you know, shouting at the decision maker. Think about who the people are that you could actually get on board, who could make your journey a lot easier.
1: I totally get that. You mentioned earlier on about Black Lives Matter and that Mm. you've been really quite outspoken about it, you know, and I I guess we're friends and I've seen that coming through on, Mm -hmm. you know, nowadays what's a very uh, (laughs) well-followed Instagram feed. But where do you think this moment and where this movement might be heading? Yeah,
0: I... I've been thinking about this a lot because, for some, for you know, for people of color and for the black people I know in my life, there's a bit of an kind of an exasperated feeling because it's kind of like, yeah, we've been talking about this for a long time. Finally, you're waking up, and in some ways, it feels a little bit like the Me Too moment when um, there, was, there was like a few days when Me Too was kind of kicking off, where all of a sudden, so many you know women in my life were sharing them their experiences on social media. And you realize that actually you're all you've all been experiencing this kind of thing on a daily basis, but no one talks about it. And it feels similar now where a people of color have, have agency to talk about what they're experiencing and b white people are listening and they're taking action. So when I went to that protest, usually when I go to a protest that's to do with racial justice or deportation issues, it's mostly people of color. This was. It was not. It was like there were so many white people there and it was incredible. It felt really amazing and like a different, it, like a different, something, something different was happening. On the back of all of this, lots has been happening. So lots of organizations doing some like reflecting, uh, lots of CEOs stepping down. And I feel like if we keep going and if we continue to be committed, and we, when I say we, I mean all of us, you know, everyone who's been sp- posting on social media, they don't just stop when there's another news story. But actually, if if everyone continues, we could really see a shift in the systems in our country. So in Minneapolis, they've already voted to defund the police. That's incredible. In the UK, there are uh, consultations happening now about the statues that we have across the country that are, you know, idolising colonialists and imperialists. Something that I never thought in my lifetime I'd see the UK doing, reviewing and accepting that this is actually not something we should be you know, celebrating. You know, those conversations about the curriculum and finally teaching colonial history in the curriculum in the UK. So I think that this could be you know, a massive wholesale change if we keep on pushing, but we just need to keep up the, me- the momentum.
1: We'll put it in the show notes for, for people who may not have seen it, but there's some quite shared footage about the police in Bristol where one of those statues was mm. pulled down, deciding not to intervene. And in a place where relationships have traditionally been been really quite hostile between the police and communities of colour in the UK, I'm intrigued, how did that... Response that they that they had, where they decided not to intervene and to let people protest.
0: How did that make you feel? It's amazing. It's incredible to see people who represent an institution that is systemically has had issues of being institutionally racist see those figures basically supporting the movement. You feel like a human being when a lot of the time you feel less than. So I think yeah, it's it's an amazing it's amazing moment. I just hope it continues. Has it
1: changed your mind about how you feel about the police at all?
0: Well, I've got mixed... I've always had mixed views about the police because I grew up in um, a village in the Midlands, white working class. My parents ran a shop there. As we were growing up, we were just... It, the racism was relentless and it was verbal and it was physical and it was daily. My memories of my childhood are just like often having the police over at nighttime. When they'd closed the shop, when mum and dad had closed the shop, another thing had happened. Either we lived across the road from the shop, there would just always be a gang hanging around outside, shouting stuff, throwing things. And it was really, it was traumatic. You know, often mum would be in tears. But they, um, my, my memories of the police are that, you know, they were just incredibly lovely and helpful. And so I kind of had this very filtered view of what was going on. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized from speaking to my dad about it, actually how hard it was for dad to actually get anything to happen, anything to change. And it was years of him speaking to the MP, speaking to the chief executive of the council to get actual real proper support from the police, because um, we were just basically being harassed all the time. So I don't know, I, I, I don't have a, you know, a black and white view of the police Um I think that there are good people in the police. I think that there's a problem with the institution and there's a problem with the institutions in Britain in terms of taking responsibility for the racism that they perpetuate. But I I think there are there are good people everywhere.
3: I was
2: just going to say, if I could take you back for just a second to another thing mm. you touched on in your original answer about the response of business. It's something we've been talking about quite a bit. Mm. How do you think... That will play out because there's there's very different camps and very different viewpoints on that. How much do you think they will uh, sort of take a bigger, broader stance and and actually do something, not just say something?
0: Yeah, I, I I honestly think that the time to just say something is over, and anyone who is just saying something looks really weak. I've been asked by you know a couple of businesses kind of for advice on. When, they, when they've when they been prepping their own statements and what they're going to do. And my advice has been don't talk about diversity training. If you're going to do something like maybe think about holding back from saying anything right now and actually do some work, make commitments when you actually say something. I think that that's really important. I'm seeing organisations change leadership, and I think that can be one of the most powerful things because you can do hours of diversity training in organisations But if you're not actually recruiting and making space and if leadership aren't stepping down to make space for black people and people of colour generally, then you're not going to see anything change. And I'm seeing that happen quite a lot. So I've got I've got hope. I do feel like this is a turning point.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure if Alex was here and we'll discuss it afterwards and put some stuff in the show notes, she'd be talking about actually how often unconscious bias training backfires and that people are just like, oh, well, I've done my training now, so I'll carry on exactly as I was before. Yeah. And it doesn't really lead to any difference, which must yeah. be, which is exceptionally frustrating as somebody to watch from the outside, hoping for things, let alone if you're the person who it was meant to be helping and then it doesn't, Yeah, you know? I can well sense the frustration. You talked a little bit about people not being all good or all bad. I'm always struck by the Avenue Q song from the musical. Everybody can be a little bit racist, really. (laughs) And (laughs) and I did warn you that I might ask this question and you can ask it back to me as well. Mm. But I, I did wonder if you ever thought that you'd been racist.
0: Yeah, I really think this is a great question and I think it's an important question. So I'm really glad you're asking it. I truly believe that we all have it in us. And it depends on where you're from, you know, and where you're born. But, you know, I I was born in England and I've been brainwashed with ideals of whiteness. And so for, I'd say a lot of my childhood to my teens, to my early twenties, I'd say I had some serious internalized racism. I was embarrassed about my family. I was embarrassed about my cultural background. I used to just like, hate it if I smelled of Indian food I w- I worked in a shop a retailer when I was 16 and I remember working with other Asians and just kind of really turning my nose up if I could smell curry on them because I had this real stigma about you know the fact that anything that washed out white was not okay and it was actually dirty and I think it's important that we talk about that because I think that we all have it I even now I think I really tried to, think about my assessments and, you know, second guess whether I'm making a judgment because somebody is speaking a certain way. I think we just all need to be aware of the just implicit biases that we have because they are there.
1: I had a experience when I I first moved to the States, actually, where I used the phrase, you know, I, I said, oh, it's all a bit Chinese whispers. Mm. And you know, like that to me had never been anything that I'd really thought about, but a Chinese friend happened to be in the room and she asked me to explain what that meant. And I just, suddenly it like it dawned on me yeah. how incredibly racist that was as an expression and I apologized profusely and said oh I, I'll, I'll never use it again but I think you know I don't like to think of myself as someone who racially discriminates or holds those biases but it's about how I say partly how unconscious it is but also how things are living and breathing and you do need to reflect and be mindful so exactly yeah. what you said Jill, about, yeah. about being really thoughtful of it and I try and I talk about that example because hopefully I it makes it permissible for other people to be like actually maybe I was a little bit racist as well and I need to work on this
0: yeah and I think it's we need to give people room to make those mistakes and um because um because the the work I've been in so many conversations in so many rooms where people tread on eggshells around me because they don't want to say the word black or they don't want to say like you know the Indian person and it's like The more that we stifle that, we're never going to learn from each other and we're never going to get better. We're never going to get to a better place. I think it's so important that we are having this conversation because I think you saw, Ali, I was like on Twitter the other day and somebody like, a you know, quite an established person in civil society tweeted saying they'd never met a happy racist. And it got like 200 retweets and everyone was loving it and everyone was patting themselves on the back because they were like, ha, ha, ha we all hate racists and I tweeted back to her and I just said this is so dangerous especially now we shouldn't be othering racism we all need to accept that it's completely in in us and it's in civil society it's in the charity sector and the more we say it's over there we'll never ever fix the problems that we've got right now
1: yeah I completely, you know, obviously, like I'm mortified about what I said. And I should say for our US listeners to translate from British English, uh, which clearly has some fairly racist roots, the Chinese uh, Chinese whispers is known as the telephone game out here. and When I explain it to my American friends, they kind of get slack-jawed. Yeah, they get slack-jawed and they're like, oh my word, British institution really is racist. It's not just America. You know, I've tried to hold on to that mortification.
2: And there are so many sayings, aren't they, that you think all the time that, blatantly discriminate against different groups in society and you use them and one by one you know you do accidentally use them at some point and then realize how awful it is.
1: I really appreciate Kajal that you're comfortable going there as well because it isn't an easy conversation to have.
2: Yeah it's important we all
0: acknowledge we're capable of it because I'm most frustrated about being in you know I've come from the charity sector in the UK and that really thinks it's angelic and uh, you know doesn't have mm. a- any problems and and it's that's that's the work that's the more dangerous and so the more mm. that we talk about this stuff the more they're able to critique themselves
1: like i was going to pass over to laura now though for that we've Thank already covered some pretty meaty topics <laughs> but, but the real bones is what we ask people
2: we have, but if I may ask you the, the question that actually we ask everyone who comes on mm. the podcast, which is about a time that you've changed your mind on a substantive issue. And you told us you changed your mind a lot. And actually that's yeah. something you're really proud of, which is really nice. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, what have you changed your mind on, even if it's lots of things, and why?
0: Oh, so much. Yeah, I really value people who change their minds. I think it's something to be really highly rated. The one I was going to talk about is that I've changed my mind about no platforming. I used to be quite strongly pro no platforming. I remember uh, in 2009 I must have been in my early 20s then. I remember when the BMP were invited to question time. So Nick Griffin, the leader of the BMP at the time, was invited to be on this and it's you know it's very kind of it's a real institution of a show. I remember it feeling like a real affliction, like a personal affliction. Like the BBC is so highly regarded and it's almost stately. Mm. And for them to invite this man with racist views onto a BBC stage felt so wrong. Then, as the years kind of went on, no platforming started taking really catching on, especially across universities. And I don't know, I think maybe for a few years I just kind of had uh, mixed views on it. Um, but now I really. Feel that when you suppress views, you actually don't hear them and people don't hear the ideas and you're not able to have a conversation. Um, And the more that you keep apart, the more that you keep those conversations apart, the further entrenched those beliefs become. Mm. And the kind of world I want to live in, the kind of society I want to live in is a world where we're able to talk to each other. Going back to kind of like the, what we were talking about earlier about mm. you know people being a bit scared to say things because they might sound racist or they might get it wrong. As an ally, you might get things wrong, but, it's, but that's okay. We need to allow people to make mistakes. And I think no platforming is almost like the opposite of that.
2: Did anything particular happen or did you see a particular example of it where you thought, no, that's wrong, actually? I think um,
0: a few things. So one thing is that, um, so I'm the director of Change.org in the UK and I've been here for about seven years and Change.org is an open platform. So it's a petition platform where anyone can start a campaign. And previously, for, for a few years, it wasn't. It was just for progressives. After a few years, this was before my time, we became an open platform and When I look at the campaigning landscape, the activism landscape, I see lots of progressives and lefties creating platforms for themselves and kind of speaking to each other. But there's nothing else out there that actually gives anybody a voice and able to speak up. And I really believe in the idea of debate and diversity of opinion. I I guess I, I believe in people having a voice more than anything. I think it's one of the reasons why we got to the kind of toxic mess of Brexit because a big portion of society just didn't feel heard for such a long time. I just feel like we need to give create more vehicles for people to be able to speak up and say their views, and for us to be able to actually debate them. Now that doesn't mean that you know. I think that there are exceptions, so I don't agree with people who incite violence or hatred. I think that 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 is you know it's not okay. You can't do that an on the street. End. Yes, exactly. And, that, you know, that, that shouldn't be tolerated. So, for example, you know, Katie Hopkins being taken off Twitter, I think that's a good thing. And I think that actually is effective when people like that are no platformed because their, um, their access to these, these kind of hateful networks are cut off. For example, someone like Katie Hopkins can easily start a hate campaign towards somebody and then that person will start end up getting hate mail, threats in the post, death threats. That kind of thing can be limited if somebody takes away their platform. But generally, I really believe that we shouldn't be suppressing people's views and we should actually be creating more spaces to to discuss them. I remember, um, I think a few years ago, the New York Times was running their festival of ideas and they were going to have David Remnick interview Steve Bannon. And then there was a lot of outrage over that. And so they dropped him. And David Remnick at the time had said when when it was going to happen that he had every intention of asking him really, you know, the difficult and serious questions. But as soon as they drop him, then we can't ask him the difficult and serious questions. And so then who's holding him accountable? That's problematic. I even feel a bit controversial saying this because I feel like in in the kind of progressive sphere, it's very on trend to be pro no platform. Yeah, so that's the that's the that's the one that I thought was the most kind of interesting.
2: And accountability is an important counterpoint, there, isn't it? One of the other things that you touched on there was creating that space for a more fulsome conversation that is, you know, less boxed off one way or the other. You know, yeah. from your perspective and from cha- you know from your experience at change, what what do you think are some of the ways we can all do that?
0: Yeah, I think there's not enough out there right now for us to be able to have those conversations I think that even our petitions model is still very much kind of you know we have so many petitions that are on either side of of an issue what I'd love is to kind of like have create forums where people are able to um, engage with each other and do that online lockdown I think has created a whole world of possibilities for us to engage with one another online, I think that you know there are lots of barriers to doing stuff like this. If you if you want diversity of opinion, I think you know doing it online is really effective. Doing stuff on you know creating um, manifestos on Google Docs. There's lots of countries that have kind of um, tested things like that out. So that I think can be more effective. I don't think that the that we're yet there yet with the tech. Like I think that social media hasn't actually quite quite provided us with the tools to really have these conversations. And so, at the moment, I just see a lot of people shouting at each other.
1: I'm interested in terms of people who, because is it 17 million people that Change.org it's, it, has in, in the, the UK? UK?
0: It's, it's 18 now. Wow,
1: well, congratulations! And then <laughs> worldwide, is
0: it, three, it is it 300 million worldwide? It's 400 million now. It basically, since COVID happened, our user growth has gone crazy. It's an exponential, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. And I suppose what I was going to ask is, you know, you've talked quite a bit about being progressive or progressive-ish, but what do you know about the backgrounds of the people who sign your campaigns? Like, is it broader as a consequence for you taking a fairly broad platforming Uh, policy?
0: 100%. Yeah. So we don't know much about our uh, users because we don't collect, we, we, we don't collect anything beyond, you know, email address, postcode. But... A few years ago, I did some work with YouGov in the UK where they matched, they basically polled our users and then they were able to give us a good kind of idea of what our our user demographic was. This was maybe five years ago now, maybe four years ago. And it was the demographic matched, almost perfectly matched the uh, portions of the population. And so we have a really, and, and we also asked them at the time, their voting intention so many of them said that they were either going to vote UKIP or Green Party. It was really interesting. It was actually before um, the 20, during the 2016 election, we didn't know which way it was going to go. People were expecting a Labour landslide, but we saw from this data that people were saying that they were just done with major parties and that they wanted to vote for the marginals. And also when um, you know, during the whole the, the last few years with Brexit it has almost been 50-50 the campaign started on the platform either pro or against so we know that there's a real split and i think it's because petitions people start like the most the majority of the petitions are local issues and they're they're about local schools or you know the hospital being closed down or trying to save the the local pub and, um, and those issues aren't about, you know, left or right. They're just about your community. And so they really, that, that's why I think we have this incredible breadth of opinion on our on our platform, because they don't come in because of politics. But our job, I guess, is to kind of um, try and engage them in more, more issues and co- try and get them um, engaged more in the, the issues that they are signing on the platform and probably surprising to quite a few people that you have that broader base. And there's a whole
1: trade-off on the amount of information you collect from people and mm. how active they get and, and comfort with data sharing as well, which is- Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. Now, Kajal, I did want to ask you a, another question that we put to almost all of our guests, which is, who would you like to hear from about a time that they had changed their mind?
0: Yeah, so I- would like to hear um someone who is you know comes across as bloody minded you know I want to hear what would change what has changed their mind and so I had two answers to this do you want me to just pick one no you could go with two Ugh,
2: as long as one of not I, okay, Barack go Obama with... <laughs> you
0: no go it's with not <laughs> no because I think that he's Barack Obama's cool I think he would change his mind I think um so uh, there's something about Dominic Cummings that makes me feel like he's very mm-hmm. bloody-minded and he really, you know, has a... He doesn't really want to listen to the politicians and he doesn't want to really listen to the government and he just wants to do his own thing and he's got his idea of, you know, his ideals, he's got his kind of um, vision and he just... It seems impossible to kind of, you know, get into his head and so I'd really like to know what, what... You know, when has he changed his mind? And likewise, Margaret Thatcher...
1: So I have an answer for you on Thatcher, actually. I've just been researching oh, it. Yeah, which is really, really, reading this fab book by a guy called Archie Brown about the role of leadership in, in politics. And she initially did not think Mikhail Gorbachev was a good thing and came around after listening to a bunch of experts and having them come to visit uh. her. She was like, actually, I think Gorbachev could be a way to peace and to really you know ending the cold war and she ran a long way ahead of Reagan who loved her on that and without Thatcher there is no way that Gorbachev that there would have been the end of the cold war in the way it was and she's really credited and i was really surprised i was very pleasantly surprised yeah. to read that i didn't chime with with my views of
0: Thatcher at all yeah, yeah. and
1: and it shows a bit how she moved as a leader when she, as she was in office, but like I say, very pleasantly surprised.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So kind of, She gave this real facade of being very kind of determined and a real strength of kind of her own opinion. But because I think I come across very certain in my views, but also at the same time, the other person doesn't realise I'm actually ticking along going, oh, actually, maybe there, there's something in that. And that doesn't always come across to the other person.
1: No and you're right. I mean she was called the Iron Lady for a reason and she yeah. cultivated the whole <laughs> this lady's not for turning things Absolutely. I was yeah, just say exactly. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did strike me in that in that story is that she had not yet taken a position and therefore it was easier for her to change her mind a bit by not having been really super wedded to a prior viewpoint and i think that's you know we took we talked Um, about this in other contexts like the as a leader the importance of being able to say i don't know or waiting to take a position to give experts the time to to brief you is incredibly important because it's so much harder to do a complete vault face once you've said something publicly
0: yeah, but it's also smarter, right? Because if you don't yeah. know, then you don't know. Mm. <laughs> like you shouldn't yeah. pretend.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a lot that politicians could learn from that. Thank you so much. You've been fab. Oh
0: thank you guys. That was fun. You
2: really have. Thank you.
1: Before we discuss, let's have a quick word from our sponsors.
2: Hello, I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We exist to bring you the latest reporting and analysis on social and political issues around the world. We're here to educate citizens, challenge power and encourage democratic debate, just as this podcast does. To find out more about us or to make a contribution to our work, visit opendemocracy.net.
1: So now we've heard the full interview, was there anything you wanted to reflect on?
2: Well, Katchell's enthusiasm and dynamism is infectious. It was really lovely talking to her; such a natural-born campaigner, and you can tell how much she enjoys empowering people. But she's also so much more than that. It was obvious that she brought a really critical lens to her own and others' behaviours. You know, constantly reflecting and being open to changing her own mind.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting when I. I- I contacted Kajal about coming on the show. She was, one, thrilled, but also there's, just said there's loads of things that I've changed my mind on. And that being open-minded was one of the things she was most proud of. And that's a real contrast to a lot of the people that we talk to who hugely struggle to answer that question or think about things. And I sort of can't help but feel that engaging in that deep thought is a muscle and that once you start doing it in one area, it really does become easier to do so in another
3: yeah it it could be something that comes from you know from experience and from and practice and also not seeing the negative outcomes or consequences of of changing your mind but also because this type of thinking is really effortful for most people so neurologically it is more effortful and i did want to also pull out an element of cadell's discussion about racism she was absolutely right that we very quickly so very automatically put people into different groups and this had evolutionary benefits so historically it meant that we could recognise people who were familiar to us, and familiarity well, at least, at least in caveman days was was more likely to mean safety, and finding a partner, and having food, and resources, and power. So by suggesting that only people on the other side are the only people capable of it, means you really are denying, I think, quite fundamentally how our brains have evolved. And I found that, and how she approached and engaged with it, just really refreshing. Um, and I think it will lead, a, a mu- lead to a much more honest conversation about race.
1: Has Kajal inspired you to think of a time you changed your mind and why? At the end of this series, we'll be doing a special listeners' edition of the show. Email Alison at depolarizationproject.com and tell us about something you've changed your mind on. The best response will get a copy of Kajal's book. Do something, activism for everybody. We'll I'm always out in the post of them. That's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Change My Mind. If you liked what you heard, don't forget we have a full back catalogue of fascinating interviews with leaders. You can find them all by searching Change My Mind in your podcast app. We'll be back next week with a new episode featuring Helen Lewis, a journalist at The Atlantic. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing, and to Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real is our theme music.